Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. I'm about to edit this podcast, so I'm excited to get this intro done and get to work. <laughs> I am the night before my flight to Denver for ETH Denver, which is about to be lit. So if, you got, if you're at ETH Denver, uh, come find me, come say hi. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm fucking stoked. It's like Christmas for Ethereum. And the ETH price <laughs> yeah. is pumping, which is even better. It's, it seems like uh, the stars are aligning for ETH Denver to be a great event yet again. So I'm a little jealous I'm not going to be there, but just got to make Bitcoin 2020 amazing. So that's my focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyways, guys, uh, really excited to bring uh, Parker Lewis of Unchained Capital onto the podcast. Parker has a deep history in traditional finance, uh, well-read in Austrian economics, and is actually very well-read in past minutes of uh, the Fed meetings. Uh, so he, he is intimately knowledgeable of the Fed minutes that are going on during the financial crisis, and he brings a really interesting take to this whole crypto thing. Disclosure, Unchained Capital is a sponsor, and we can just talk about Unchained right now. Unchained is one of my favorite companies in the space because they create Bitcoin native financial infrastructure for Bitcoin. In particular, they're utilizing Bitcoin's multi-sig, which we talk about in depth on this podcast. Bitcoin multi-sig as a native tool really makes Unchained a unique kind of a business. They are giving banking services that you would expect from your Chase or from your uh, your Wells Fargo or whatever, but you have full control of your funds. Um, it's two of three multi-sig. You always have two keys. You know They only ever need to get involved if you want them to be. Um, so I think that they actually offer a lot of utility, especially for those people who are not as cypherpunk, kind of like the normal people that you know just want to have a bank and hold their money in it. Um, and Unchained is doing a lot of amazing things around multi-sig. They also get into... Uh, lending. So instead of lending with some of those other guys that are going to be loaning out your Bitcoins to to short sellers, if you're collateralizing your Bitcoin for, to make loans with Unchained, the funds are always held on chain. You can hold one of the keys and then Unchained and a third party arbiter hold the other two keys. So again, taking advantage of Bitcoin's native financial tooling uh, which is really exciting. So big fan of Unchained. I use them personally. Check them out at unchained-capital.com. Next is eToro. eToro is one of our long-term sponsors and they have been supporting the show forever. They're one of the best exchanges in the world and they have recently brought their crypto exchange products to the United States. I think their coolest and most innovative products is their copy trader feature. It allows you to copy a trader on eToro and have your funds allocated to an active strategy, but you don't have to do anything. eToro truly is a one-stop shop. You can go there, stack stats, you can go there, passively invest in an index, or you can go there and actively trade. They really give you everything, and uh, I'm a fan. The best, best of all is when you're done, you can take those funds and you can withdraw them to your hardware wallet. So it's, it really is a full one-stop shop, all you need in an exchange place to get your Bitcoin and crypto assets. So check out eToro. Use our link, b.tc backslash eToro POV. Again, b.tc backslash eToro POV. I really enjoyed this uh, episode with Parker Lewis. Uh, the first half of it is kind of a uh, nuanced, it's a talking about the nuances between uh, Bitcoin as a highly secure layer that is simply just for the management of Bitcoins 
And then we kind of compare uh, Ethereum smart contract wallets to Bitcoin's multi-sig and uh, how that kind of reflects uh, the ecosystems at large. Uh, we go into kind of the nuances of, of what is a security issue for a wallet versus what is a security for the ecosystem and some other other similar Bitcoin versus Ethereum topics. And then we go into Parker's attitude as an, or, or belief in Austrian economics. And I actually really appreciated that. Uh, I get a lot of resistance from the Ethereum community uh, about time preference and Austrian economics, which I'm, I'm a fan of. Uh, and you can see me and Parker align here. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Let's just go ahead and get right into the episode. Parker Lewis of Untrained Capital. I'm super excited to bring Parker Lewis to the podcast. Parker and I have been friends for a little bit over a year now, and uh, I've been asking him to get on to POV for a while. Unchained Capital, his employer, is actually sponsoring the show too. So excited to bring you on. You've been doing a lot of amazing writing recently and just uh, thought leadership. So excited to dive into a lot of these topics. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited here. I think we met for the first time, Christian, at BTC or Bitcoin... North American Bitcoin Conference in Miami, which was the opposite of a Bitcoin conference. Um, yeah, the North American Bitcoin <laughs> Conference. Yeah, um, and you know, I I think I David, I met you for the first time out at Bitcoin 2019 last year. So um, I, you know, oftentimes Bitcoiners and Ethereum supporters supporters butt heads, but uh, I learned for the first time that they can actually get along when I saw you two and how good friends you guys are. So I'm uh, excited to be here. Look forward to. Um, going back and forth on not only the things that we're working on at Unchained, um, but also some of the writings that I've done and then talk about uh, some of the distinctions between Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think it's kind of funny that you met me at a shitcoin conference and then you met David at a Bitcoin conference. <laughs> so Parker, let's just start off. Like, Why don't you give us a brief intro? You've done a lot of podcasts, so listeners have a lot of, uh, you know, go to Peter McCormick, Stephen Levera, Marty Bent to like get Parker's full history, check out all of his stuff. But um, I guess give us a brief intro to you know what you're doing in the space right now and what are you kind of doing at Unchained? Yes. Yeah, so uh, one, uh, I lead our business development efforts here at Unchained. Um, Unchained Capital is a Bitcoin financial services company. We offer multi-faults to help people uh, secure their Bitcoin better. And then we also lend against Bitcoin to, to help uh, generally long-term holders t- that have Bitcoin and don't want to sell their Bitcoin be able to access liquidity or dollar liquidity in a tax-efficient way. So uh, really the way that we think about the work that we're doing here at Unchained is is really building the archetype of the financial institution. There's a, there's a range of different opinions as it relates to, to, to Bitcoin and, and the cryptos here at Unchained, uh, but but that's really what we can really coalesce behind it and really kind of what we, we view as our mission. Awesome. So I guess this kind of, you know, transitions really well into like, what is a Bitcoin native financial institution look like? Like, how are you guys using multi-seg and Bitcoin's native features to, you know, kind of deliver this new age financial services? The the way that we really look at the world of Bitcoin, I think that uh, we look at the the landscape, but then we also, uh, you know, the vast majority, if not all of us are, are Bitcoiners ourselves. Um, we look at the the world where you know we all recognize that uh, keys are really the you know one of if not most essential part of Bitcoin, and that recognize that on a personal level each person within the organization. Um, but then when we look at the market as a whole, um, we recognize that the the vast majority of of all Bitcoin is self custodied by by individuals and off exchange. Um, oftentimes, I think that narrative gets lost when 
you know, people can, can more easily quote the size of Bitcoin or crypto in general that's custody at a Coinbase, but, but realistically, the vast majority of all Bitcoin is not held by exchange. And so when we, the financial institution, the problems that we ourselves have as Bitcoiners, and then the solutions that we need, uh, you know, we first think about keys and, and really at Unchained, we start with keys and then we build up from there. So um, when it comes to our custody solutions, um, th- those custody solutions are, are built on clients having their own keys. Um, and then when we extend that in two different ways, um, but the but the primary way is that Bitcoin is held in, in, in Bitcoin native uh, multi-signature addresses and our clients retain one of the keys of a, of a two of three. We only have one key and then we have a third party inst- uh, institution that holds the third key. So really, you know, as a platform, you know, there there is, uh, you know, remains trust in of our clients, whether it's on the vault side and, and a client holds two of their own three or on the loan side. Um, but we do everything um, and engineer everything around edge cages to, to, to minimize the trust that's required in our in our organization as it relates to the you know relationship between us and our clients. And that by doing that over the long term, we believe we're building a more uh, sustainable financial institution and what what we believe will be the model of the financial institution in, in the future Bitcoin world. So Nick Carter, who I think highly of, often talks about uh, proof of reserves. Uh, so can you kind of uh, illustrate for us how Unchained Capital might satisfy Nick Carter's demand changes into a proof of reserve type system? So I, I can, I can definitely speak to how we solve the problem. Sure. Yeah. How that might look in the future. Hope. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, so, so first on, on how, how we solve it, you know, at least, uh, you know, on, on the custody side. Uh, so we, we do have two different models. We have a two or three where our clients hold two keys and we hold one. We have a second solution where we have one, uh, our clients have one, and then a, a partner institution holds the third. And, and kind of collectively, we refer to that as collaborative custody. Um, and in e- each one of those cases, the, the vaults are dedicated and have unique client keys. Um, and we also provide our clients with uh, the ability through open source tools to to, to validate and verify that uh, the the addresses that are associated with their vaults are actually controlled by their own keys, such that any any Bitcoin that's sitting in an unchained capital vault, as we term it, um, is is able any individual be able to to validate it not only on you know third party block explorer, but they could validate the, the those balances on a on their own full node. Um, and then similarly on the lending side, um, and it's one of the things that, and one of the primary reasons why, why when people choose to use Unchained that they do, is that each each Bitcoin um, collateral account, we issue a dollar loan, we will create a, a dedicated collateral account for Bitcoin in reserve while the loan is outstanding. And, and, and when that is the case, uh, individuals can still participate in the security of that asset by holding one of three keys. Now, they definitely give up control in that scenario, but in each case, uh, the Bitcoin is theirs. They can participate in the security and they can validate that that Bitcoin has not moved. Um, it has not been rehypothecated. So in, in, in our case, um, and then even in the case where, because uh, we do offer one custody model keys, um, we do that for, for individuals that want to borrow against their Bitcoin but aren't comfortable holding their own keys. Even in those instances, we have dedicated uh, multi-signature addresses per loan collateral account. So all of our all of our clients in every single instance have the ability to, to validate and verify that their Bitcoin is actually to the broader space first, that 
um, you know, when, when more and more institutions look at the world of Bitcoin and start building from the from the ground up rather than kind of building around the traditional uh, full custody model, that that more and more institutions will come toward where Unchained is starting at. And I think that a lot of these issues around proof of reserves. Um, as it relates to, to, to those who don't, I do think in, in, you know, kind of given that it's not a problem that, w- that we actively work to solve um, because we solve it in a different way, I, d- I do think that uh, increasingly um, exchanges, you know, wh- whether that be a Coinbase or Gemini or Zappo, um, whoever it may be that's uh, facilitating third-party custody, that, that they, they will increasingly need to, to establish for their clients that they have, that they actually have the reserves that, that they state that they have and, and that, that we're providing and in the way that we're delivering our applications, that um, that, that and then, then the, the reality that as soon as one domino falls and one full custodian starts providing a, a serviceable proof of keys, then all the rest will have to, will have to um, follow that lead. So um, I don't necessarily have a, you know, a suggested approach to, to how they how they would achieve that I know that blockstream provided a um, a proposal maybe six months ago I think the reality is it, it, it's you know going to become a bar minimum but but realistically I do believe that increasingly third-party institutions will shift more toward a, a segregated model where individuals can be able to validate their their Bitcoin on, on on chain. The uh, financialization of Bitcoin from the opinion of Bitcoiners seem to rely on, on and so um, to my knowledge, multi-sig is just a way to to enforce an agreement, chain agreement between two parties. Uh, and so like, for example, on chain capital, you guys offer services and you use multi-sig as a tool to achieve the services that you guys offer. All the logic and all the services has nothing to do with the Bitcoin blockchain, except for that it's uh, written into it's forced enforced by the multi-sig itself and so like the logic is off-chain right the logic is a company it's a business it's contracts paper pen contracts and then the only thing that really kind of uh, provides any sort of assurances is the existence of the multi-sig uh, did i get that right and 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 then you also said um bitcoin financialization starts from uh, from multi-sig and then moves upwards so can maybe you can just touch on that uh, yeah I, I do think that that your characterization is fair in in the sense that ultimately kind of in, in the way that i and i don't want to be you know in the rest of, of the bitcoin world but that really thinking of, of Bitcoin at, and everything that exists within Bitcoin as being a closed loop system that, that all Bitcoin really knows is keys. And it's designed that way um, for security reasons. It does one thing well, and that is issue currency and val- validate currency. And that, that, that it really is by design structured only to do those things. And as a result, it, it cannot know anything that exists outside of, you know, its own four walls. And that in terms of, of the delivery of financial services, whether or, or, or merely, you know, custody, which, which is a, a very primary financial service that exists today, given we're in the monetization event of Bitcoin, that the natural function of, you know, the interaction between people and their money or between people and financial institutions becomes contractual or they you know and, and it's it's an idea that rather than potentially create weakness in the settlement layer and in, and on the bitcoin blockchain protocol layer that we want that you know as you know as possible and that as soon as you start to introduce things from the outside world into that the the result is that the base layer um, is no longer as secure and 
the you know what good is a financial service if if your money isn't sound so yes so in, and then when it comes to multi-sig it's essentially that if in bitcoin all bitcoin knows how to do is validate keys and that it knows no personal identities or anything about the outside world then the logical application for uh, financial services um, how you know however you may fulfill payments in the future it becomes the the relationship between keys and, and the parties that hold those keys and, it, and it's also recognizing that in the vast majority of all forward beyond just um, kind of Bitcoin being held today or Bitcoin being borrowed today but when we actually think about real commerce it's this idea that uh, that the, the, the fulfillment of money and the settlement of money and the fulfillment of goods always happen at two different times. So in, in, in the practical application of trade in the real world versus the digital world that is Bitcoin, those, those two will naturally happen at two different times. And way to intermediate that, that trade will likely be through, you know, it, you know, an existing payments type layer where, where, you know, cash is essentially moved through an intermediary or it goes through a multi-set contract. So now I think we come from it from the perspective that, that keys are all Bitcoin really knows and validation is. And so the social contract that sits on top of that will always sit outside of Bitcoin and multi-sig is logical application to deliver. Are you familiar with the ecosystem of smart contract um, wallets on Ethereum? Yes, and I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but I'm, I'm familiar with yeah. Yeah, well, I'm also not an expert and I'm just a user. Um, so the concept of a smart contract wallet is that uh, it allows, like, like Ethereum, it allows for more expressive uh, rules to be built into into the wallet. And so famously, Argent Wallet, yeah, you can uh, whitelist or blacklist addresses, you can send uh, make spending limits, you can uh, do all these expressive things that start to feel like a, a bank account uh, inside of Ethereum. Uh, and uh, so the, 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 the Ethereum bull case for that is that, you know, instead of, instead of needing a, a company to kind of manage the logic outside of the chain itself, uh, the, the wallet itself has the logic built into the wallet. And so, so from what, I, what I'm hearing from you is that the criticism uh, from uh, the Bitcoin perspective is that, uh, well, that, that trade-off between allowing that expressibility in that wallet is not worth the trade of, uh, of an insecure settlement. Yes, that, that, that would that be right? my view. Okay. Um, is, there, is there any other expressive way of getting a, a, a Bitcoin wallet to behave in any particular way other than multi-sig? Time lock? Is that what time lock is? That, I mean, I think that, you know, kind of in a, in a future application, that in, in a world of APIs, that, that if you wanted to build some additional intelligence where there, there were automated, you know, signatures that could be created based on, you know, certain events, based on certain other oracles, that that could certainly be engineered. I think that, mm -hmm. that as it relates to the, to the world of Bitcoin and, you know, kind of starting from that principle that, you know, the Bitcoin knows nothing about the outside world, that, you know, while, while you, could, you could build those type of kind of expressive type type contracts, they naturally, and they naturally would go through some, you know, some centralized service provider um, to, to then be able to communicate whether or not, you know, you could have an automated signature created, but if you can't, if you can't connect to the server where the, where the signature or, or the key is to create the signature, what good is it? So um, I do think that, you know, that, that, that is a reality. I also don't think that that, you know, in the practical application of 99% of trade that, that it will that that will be an issue because of the because of the distinction that again you know kind of the fulfillment of goods and the and the settlement of money very naturally happen at two different times and if you were thinking about that you know as a, as a as a logical application to try to solve through 
um, some sort of expressive technology. You just would never, never be able to do it because you'd always be showed up or not. Uh, you can't know that. And if, and if that is the, the primary use case of money, which is it's really not to, to trade digital assets for digital assets, um, it, you know, now that is one application, but in the real world, the much larger application is trading money, which is increasingly going to become digital through Bitcoin uh, with physical goods. And, and that, that in that world of commerce, that the, the need for expression is still there, but it's just simply one that can't be solved um, by definition without some sort of intermediary. Uh, can you I'll, point I'll, to... <laughs> I just I'm want gonna, to chime in too that uh, Schnorr, Taproot, and Check, uh, Check Template Verify are all new BIPs that have recently got BIP numbers that look to add in those kind of like features that the smart contract wallet would provide, um, but as like express, you know, functions rather than like Turing complete functions. So is there um, an example of, so when, when you say that um, the role of Bitcoin is to be the most secure settlement layer, is there, what, is there anything that's happened in the Ethereum world? Like what, what constitutes uh, Ethereum being an insecure settlement layer? Is like, is the DAO hack uh, or, or a, a hypothetical like hack funds from a smart contract? Is, does that represent an insecure settlement layer or what exactly breaks uh, an insecure settlement layer? So I, I would definitely highlight two, two of those things as examples. I think that I, I don't necessarily have a dog in the fight, but, you know, w with Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, you know, I, I add as the consensus went with Ethereum, so therefore that's Ethereum. But in reality, I think what, you know, kind of one of the risks that that showed was that, you know, what was the centralization. And so I think that, you know, while, while security is a, is a protocol layer and, and, and is, you know, a rep software, it, it's also a, a social attack vector. And so I think that, you know, specifically in, in Bitcoin and in something that I view, and at least, you know, it's, it's, it's my opinion, that, um, that, that one, one thing that Bitcoin has shown is that it, that it increasingly decentralizes over time. I don't necessarily think the same is true of networks like Ethereum. Um, and I think that the, the DAO hack you know, is, is an evidence of that. I do think that there are other, I think that, but, but more on a, on a larger level, I think that the insecure nature of it, if you can, through social coordination, have, like, have a uh, non-contentious hard fork for a marginal issue, that's not a, that's not a mission critical, you know, the network is going to fail if, if we don't do this, that the, the non-contentious hard fork that brings along consensus also shows to me centralization. So that, that, you know, each time, I see any protocol hard fork when it when it is a, a non-critical bug error that it would otherwise cause the network to shut down. That to me sig signals centralization. I think each time that you do that, it becomes more and more centralized. Then separately, I do think that like an example like the parity, uh, I don't even think you could refer to it as a hack. Um, it's just like the parity accident that if you're if you're living in a world uh, a global financial system that is that's built from the ground up off of Bitcoin that you can't have somebody accidentally across the world accidentally lock you out permanently from $150 million or whatever it was at the time. Um, and that, you know, ultimately in Bitcoin, goal being we want this language to be as simple as possible such that, you know, hopefully over time it ossifies and that, that anywhere you are in the world, whether two people in the United States facilitating commerce over the Bitcoin network and two people unbeknownst to them are in China, possibly do that and that that simplicity um is um 
is the root source of getting to that world where we, we can all at least know we're, we're always speaking the same language and that, that various different endpoints in the network can't, you know, unnecessarily, whether maliciously or unmaliciously, uh, compromise the, the assets and the money of, of other people in the network. Otherwise, no one will ever, you know, in, in a mass scale, adopt it as a form of money uh, if something like that could happen. So I do, I do view it as the, the combination of not just the, the DAO hack, but, but, mm-hmm. but the centralization and then the parity hack, or not parity hack, but the, the parity issue, parity wall. Parity issue. bug. So, so I see that's I see that uh, in two different buckets. There is smart contract risk, and then there is centralization risk. And so, one concern uh, that Bitcoiners have is that the expressibility of Ethereum uh, cr- contributes to bloat, which contributes to centralization, which is a fine concern. Uh, the the smart contract risk concern, I'm not ready to to concede because the parity bug didn't impact me in the slightest. Uh, as a user of Ethereum, uh, and it didn't impact anyone that wasn't involved with Parity or had their funds with Parity, and so um, like the the it's it's more of the idea that it's it's a it's a the Parity system was relevant to them, and it was an opt-in system, and no way it didn't force anyone else to opt into it, and it was their fault for having that bug in the first place because smart contracts are are hard and risky and you know have a lot at, at stake. But when it comes to just simply using the EVM to send Ether from person to person, had no impact upon any of the rest of the network. And that's specifically the role of the EVM. The EVM is like this uh, container that keeps all damages inside of it and doesn't allow it to impact the rest of the ecosystem. And, and I think, I, you know, so you know, on one hand, you could, you could theoretically equate that to, well, you know, if I, if I lose my Bitcoin keys, then... Then, uh, then that, you know, I'm screwed, and that doesn't mm-hmm. impact anybody else. Or you could, you could, you know, look at it as, you know, oh, well, Mount Gox. Well, if you didn't have money in Mount Gox, sh- shame on you. And we all move forward because we are now better. Um, I think that I think that there, there, you know, that I don't think that's a hundred percent kind of the, the the parallel. I do think that that it that it's directionally similar. Um, but I think that you know, as you know, if I if I was to draw a different distinction, it would be if I'm running code at Unchain and it's a multi-sig and uh, and I'm using the, you know, kind of something that's protocol native, such as, you know, a, a P2SH, you know, P2SH transaction, a multi-sig transaction, and the, the, the client has their, their two keys and their game script or they have their three X pubs. There's nothing on the Unchain side or, mm-hmm. or any code that could be written thereafter that could cause those funds to be lost. And so I do think that, you know, kind of when you introduce kind of the, um, and, and I know that, you know, this isn't expressly the same, but I think it, it is another risk that, um, you know, when you, when, you, when you introduce the capability for all programming language to be interpreted, or to, to interpret all other languages. Um, and, and again, this is, you know, something that kind of I recognize on a conceptual level, I'm not an expert on Turing completeness or non-Turing completeness, but I think the, that, that the core idea is that, this the simplicity in the in the Bitcoin code and the the kind of the express purpose to to do to do these certain things and these certain things alone, such that everyone can always know that they're communicating the same language, ultimately creates greater security. So I, I do I do hear your point that you know it didn't impact you as somebody who wasn't using parity, but but that all also on chain. We we had a we had an Ethereum smart contract that we had to build because um, because Ethereum doesn't have native multi-sig. And we recognize that the best way to store, to store Bitcoin 
was was multisig. We don't we no longer support Ethereum today, and one of the reasons being that we are so focused and believe that the right way to secure, you know, in addition to a number of fundamental views around Bitcoin, that multisig is the best way to secure these digital assets. Well, and it predated my time at Unchained, but they went out and developed a a very simple, um, dumbed down multisig that, that essentially mimicked. Uh, Bitcoin's multi-sig contracts. Um, but it scared me to death personally because anything that would happen with that contract would be you know, risk-specific to unchain. If something happened with a, a P2SH multi-sig contract that's native to the Bitcoin protocol, it's not something that is, that is specific risk associated with unchain. And so I think then when you talk, to, talk about people building applications on top of things, you're, you're starting to in- introduce um, not just liability, but risks to, to customers that are specific to the actual um, kind of applications themselves. When in reality, you know, if you have a very core set of, of, of contracts or ways in which to interact with the, with the Bitcoin network, and, and those have been reviewed more exhaustively, then the inherent risk to everyone is reduced. Wait, so I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about like building Bitcoin native infrastructure. And I think part of that is what you're referring to is Bitcoin has these contracts, these opcodes already built into it. Uh, some people are trying to build more into it. Some people are trying to remove more from it. Um, but these are effectively contracts that you guys can tap into and build financial products on. You and I believe River Financial are probably the only two companies that I see are really kind of like trying to build Bitcoin native finance rather than, you know, building a, you know, like Coinbase has its own thing happening and then it withdraws and deposits onto the Bitcoin, you know, it it makes transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain, but all of the logistics, everything in the UI is kind of happening in their bubble. Like when you're using Unchained, you are actually depositing your funds on in the Bitcoin, you know, on a, in an address on, on the blockchain, those keys are separated. Like that's a Bitcoin native function to deliver that service. Can you talk a little bit more about like how you guys think about that and how you guys think about using Bitcoin's native features and smart contracts, um, you know, in your, in your solution? You know, in our, in our world, and I talked about this a lot, a little bit at the start and I'll elaborate here. There are, there are really two core principles that, that, that back kind of the, the, the entire strategy of being native, you know, the, the first one being our own individual recognition that, the way that Bitcoin shared, you know, in just in 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 just a security setting, um, whether whether it's self custody or full custody, that the longer the individuals stay in Bitcoin, or if you bought one years to two t plus two years, that not only is that Bitcoin going to be worth more to you, but that you are going to be more likely and in a better position to actually secure those, and over time you are increasingly going to do that. So we know that as individuals. And we recognize that that's where the most of the market is. Um, it, it is really the on-ramp. Um, I think it will become the on-ramp. But when we start with that principle that this is actually the right way to, to hold keys, we know that as individuals, it then becomes there are other things that I need as an individual, as it relates to the financial world that I can't provide myself. And the, the way that we are building our, our services and, and who we are as, as an organization, as a partner of our clients, it, it's built off of that, you know, not only, it's not, it's not just a philosophical or a dogmatic approach, it, it's, it's an expression of a view that um, we're actually creating better security outcomes 
by by pushing security to the edge of the network. And you know, if you look at Unchain in the future, the amount of keys that are actually going to secure all the the, the Bitcoin that's held by by Unchained clients, it, it will always be two to one client keys to, to Unchain. It may be marginally less because we do have you know a, a multi institution approach where we have one key third party institution holds the second and then the client holds the third. But realistically, by reducing the, like, by increasing the number of keys, we're actually reducing the attack or reducing the attack surface. And in that we're not running bots. And so then when we think about that extension to, well, how do I, how do I, you know, apply that in the context of loans or, or how would I think about helping clients facilitate um, Bitcoin based lightning payments that, that everything kind of works off the premise that the core holdings that every Bitcoiner should have are just going to be that Bitcoin at rest. And the, and the, the best way that individuals, both for the, the network as a, as a whole, as well as, as well as individuals is for more and more individuals to be holding keys because ultimately more keys that exist, it doesn't just protect unchain or unchains clients. It ultimately, I think about it and I don't like to get you know political, but it's like the more keys that you have out there in the world that are securing Bitcoin, the more UTXOs or Bitcoin outputs, the the more impenetrable Bitcoin becomes because the, the, the economic share ultimately has fewer single points of failure and it has many, many, many more moles in the game of whack. And so it actually acts as a, d- a deterrent. And I, I like to think of it as like the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment exists such that we, you know, we ensure that a government never comes and tries to take our guns because we have guns. It's, it's like that idea that if we all have our own keys, then the government will recognize that they're not going to go be able to go knock on every single door because it's not just the United States. It's going to be you know Europe, China, Japan, South America, Africa, um, and that it's just not practical. It, it, it's, a, it's an exercise of... Um, utility at that point and and really the keys are that are the center of that and when we think about keys versus nodes we think it's important that people run nodes we think it's important that people have keys but if you have your keys you don't have to rely on any other third party you could go to another country go to another city go to another coffee shop spool up a new node there but if you if you're not in possession of your keys you're you're ultimately dependent on a third party at some point in time and if we rely on third parties uh, such as Coinbase, then you know there are fewer keys, and they become the central point of co-option of pressure from 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 a you know from a regulatory institution or or the government at large. So, kind of when we think about Bitcoin native, it is it is on that premise of what delivers the best security outcome for our clients. Because if we deliver um, better security while Bitcoin is at rest, then we can also help those clients better as they. As, as Bitcoin evolves and as additional financial services are are demanded just based on where we're at in the stage of Bitcoin adoption. And as that occurs, if we're always starting with a principle from keys, which is really what we mean when we say Bitcoin native, then we will always be in the position to, to preserve the value or deliver greater value to clients. Moving towards like multi-sig versus, Bitcoin, versus DeFi, um, you've already kind of expressed a lot why you like multi-sig and why you think that multi-sig delivers such superior security from a network as well as a personal level. But kind of talking about DeFi, a lot of times, you know, Ethereum proponents will talk down on Bitcoin as being slow. No one's building on top of it. No one is building these kind of these primitives in order to utilize Bitcoin. Um, I think your company is actually doing, you know, is is proving them wrong. Um, your company is both a for-profit company as well as a company that is contributing open source infrastructure to Bitcoin that can be used 
or thought of as like money Legos to some degree, you know, ways to utilize Bitcoin in a very safe, secure way, um, building up on the multi-sig um, through open source. Can you kind of address like what what's Unchained's like vision about building on top of Bitcoin and how's the Bitcoin stack evolving? First, I, I immediately think that Bitcoin is definancializing the economy. Um, so I know that there is another application which is decentralized finance. And I think that, you know, you know, first, and, and I, you know, again, I generally don't like to take, you know, kind of shots at what other people are working on that, you know, kind of generally try to stay focused on, on what it is I'm working on. But one of the, you know, uh, because this is POV crypto, um, really the, the two core issues with DeFi before I come back to, to, to why we're doing what we're doing is that, you know, you, the only thing that I see is, you know, kind of things that we're already doing on the unchained side and trying to take a different approach to it. And, and there's reasons why I don't think that works. Uh, the first thing is that I think that the currencies that are underpinning them um, are, are, are ultimately and will prove to be bad stores of value. I think that they, they will have non-credible monetary properties or they won't be demanded because Bitcoin exists as a better monetary option. So that, that is the biggest challenge that, that they have. But then secondarily, the, the primary application is just that, decentralized finance. And it's like, you know, if Bitcoin solving the money of definancializing the economy, we're actually getting to want to have less, less finance, you know, not more. And what I mean by that is that we've, we've been conditioned in this world because of uh, the Fed's world of QE and, and, and manufactured inflation. We've all been uh, convinced that we have to make our money grow. And, 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 and what that means is, is you get money, you should invest it in somebody else's business. Or put it in, in, you know, some other financial asset, whether it's the stock or bond, because because your money's going to lose value, so you outpace um, inflation. And Bitcoin, that's the salt. That's the problem. Bitcoin solves. You, you no longer will have to do that. Like you may still choose, money's no longer going to lose value. So um, in that that respect, that's why I say that um, you know, Bitcoin is def, you know, it's DeFi is more you know, definancialization rather than decentralized finance. Um, another kind of reason why I you know don't see DeFi working is that you know again it, it's either you know, an application of, of moving between two different forms of money. So I, I you know, again, I, I wrote a piece which we can talk about a bit that's Bitcoin obsolete all the money. I think we own one, one money. Um, I have two, I'm only going to have to have Bitcoin. But even when, you know, our app that, 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 are, that are within DeFi that, that moves, quote, stable coins, I think, and, that, and that's where I'll kind of bridge this back on chain, is that a stable coin is not a dollar. If people believe that they are creating um, a, a decentralized finance layer where they can trade um, whatever your, your cryptocurrency of choices, whether it's Ethereum or Augur, whatever it is, for some interest, and then and then you get stable coin. That that it's this realization that the stable coin, like the only way that a dollar, if, if that is the application that, that you're working within, the only way to move a dollar is ultimately through a central bank. It's either that or physically in person. Um, and so you know, there's there's this kind of um, representation of dollars that, that sit on top of it in the form of stable coins but 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 it's it's really just like a magic trick um you're referring it from person to person using keys but the dollar isn't actually moving which is fundamentally different than bitcoin and so I, and, and i and i don't just i just don't see the value in that because if you actually need dollars um you got to get dollars like if, if you actually want to use those dollars for, for something other than a financial purpose you got to get them back in the banking system um, and that's really what we're focused on with Unchained. It's if you have Bitcoin, we 
we will lock up your Bitcoin in, in a multi-sig contract and then we'll actually issue dollars into your bank account so that, that you can actually use them in the real world. And that's what, you know, while we do have, you know, certain customers who use our Bitcoin back loans to buy more Bitcoin, the, the primary application is to buy things in the real world. Uh, somebody wants to buy a house and they don't want to sell their Bitcoin or um, somebody is investing in their business and they don't want to sell their Bitcoin. So um, I think, you know, for a number of reasons, I think DeFi is a, is a misguided idea. I think it's kind of contrary to, to what Bitcoin will actually achieve in definancializing the economy and then related to, to a lending model. It, it, it makes sense to have that be centralized um, because uh, dollars are cleared centrally. So, um, and, and, and contracts are enforced. Uh, okay. So a couple of things I, I have to hit on. Uh, I, I agree that, that the every, revolution of cryptocurrency will devise the world as in like when, in 2008, when these CDO things were packaged up and sold, like that was too much finance. We didn't need finance to go that create whatever that product was that brought us down in, in 2008. An example of something that there was an overreach of finance that we don't really need. However, finance is, is inherent into the world of, of money. Uh, as soon as you have money, you then start having financial primitives right then after. Uh, in order to invest, you need to trade money now for money in the future. And that means lo- uh, borrowing and lending markets. Uh, and then it kind of just spawns from there. Then you have futures and then you have you know, all, all of these you know, exchanges, all of these very inherent financial primitives. And that's what DeFi is. That DeFi isn't, you know, a refinancialization of the old world in this new substrate. It's simply re, rebuilding these financial primitives that are emergently bound by out of human behavior, uh, and now we're building them in a crypto uh, in, in a crypto context. Uh, and then the, the you want to you want to talk about the font here? Second point. Yeah, I just I just had you know one question. Like if we think if we think forward to kind of. Uh, tangible commerce in the real world. Um, where where is an application where DeFi solves a problem, if it does? So okay, that actually brings me to my second point, which was which was uh, you know these stable coins that and your you, one of your points was that you know the, it, it's not really useful if you can't cash them out to a real world dollar. Uh, well, I mean p- people people don't really care about actual dollars; care about holding a dollar's worth of value. And so, so in, insofar that one stable coin allows you to hold, send, and receive one dollar's worth of value, no one, no one cares if there's an actual dollar. Can I, can I challenge that? Sure. Can I, can I challenge that point? So, sure. uh, and this isn't just a point that, that um, I would pick on here. I, I think that, you know, in the world of, of you know, traditional finance, that uh, there's this idea of money and near money. Um, mm-hmm. and, and even the fed themselves, or, or, you know, if you go talk to a resident economist at, at uh, JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, they'll, they'll refer to treasuries as near money. Um, but what the, what the fed just figured out was that, that, that treasuries aren't money and that the dollars are, and that, mm-hmm. uh, when, when essentially, and, uh, you know, I presume that your audience isn't super well kind of informed on, on the fed, but to, to give some background, which I'm not going to go long winded in this, but when, when the, the lending market and the repo or the repo market broke, Fed had to, you know, instantly supply hundreds of billions of more dollars to, to the market. And that was, that was one, that, that was one small, but large case where everyone figured out that no, people actually do really need dollars and that, that, that they are distinct from these other financial assets. And if you don't have them, there will be 
credit failures. And so when I think about that comment more tangibly to something like DeFi, DeFi or stable coins, it is, no, you really do need dollars because right now, if you want to go to the grocery store and get food, you know, they're not, they're not taking stable coin. Um, mm -hmm. you, know, the, the, you know, if you presented them with the option of stable coin versus real coin, um, real dollar, they, you know, they're like, no, just pay me real dollar. Um, and so I, so I do think in, 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 the, in the practical application that, you know, in, in the context of trading other crypto assets, I agree with you, uh, except for the, the cases where, you know, we, we know about where people have gone back to Gemini, where like person A trades a Gemini dollar to person B. Well, well, if person B wants to go get the dollar out of Gemini, they've got to clear their AML KYC. And we found that, mm -hmm. you know, if you can't do that, then you don't actually have the value that thought you did. Recognize in the, in, the, in the world of trading, you know, cryptocurrencies, maybe it's not important, but the, the application of 99.99% of the economy, it is a practical application. And then we think about Bitcoin, that will be the, the, the same role. It's like, in, in, my, in my view, I don't need to be trading all these digital assets. I just need this money because the money is actually going to translate into a home, a car, a, you know, food at the, at the grocery store, gas at the gas station. And that's kind of really how who's, I... Who's going to take your Bitcoin at the grocery store? If they're not uh, if they're, well, if they're they, taking Bitcoin at the grocery store, they're taking stable coins at the grocery store too. Well, they're taking uh, well, if we refer to you know the actual dollars of stable coin, but you know, increasingly, you know, and I know that you know it's not singularly Bitcoin, but you know, the Thai restaurant down the street takes Bitcoin. Uh, increasingly mm -hmm. people that we pay want Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. uh, you know, payments is something in Bitcoin that will be will come as more and more people adopt it. Like you you like myself, I would take Bitcoin right right now payment of my salary right. but but once more people demand that like you have to first want to own bitcoin to then be willing to directly be paid for it um and so that that's the logical progression there but i i, I hear you. i'm not saying that like no one would ever accept a, a, a stable coin at, at a grocery store i'm just saying that if they really understood it, they probably would. so on one point i see what david is saying and like there are clear cases of in areas without good dollarized financial system that stable coin actually like on the blockchain stable tokens actually get liquidity so like david is right that they can be useful parker is also right saying that like there is a severe liquidity issue amongst these things and you know that's going to be difficult i have to push back on david when he says that that stable coins and bitcoin will be accepted in conjunction because i think that bitcoin has very specific properties that drive people to want to accept it and part of that is liquidity name brand um all of those things like uh, you could go to someone who's like maybe crypto curious about, I'll give you some Bitcoin or you could be like, Hey, I'll give you this USDC. Like, you know, I, I'm most likely they're not going to know what the USDC is and most likely they will know what the Bitcoin is. And that is, that has compounding effects. So um, I don't think that it's, it's a false equivalent to say that, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to ride together. Well, it, it, that's also to dis also disregard the value of stability in a currency. And I know Bitcoiners love to talk about how stable Bitcoin will be in the future and how gold will purchasing power, but like it's just not the reality of the case today. And there doesn't seem to be any change in that in the short term and maybe not the medium term. Stability right so now that's, is that's, important, that's, I think. And that's also where I, yeah. And so that's why I want to talk about DAI, which is not a stable coin. It is a stable cryptocurrency. So a USDC, Tether, all these US dollar backed tokens, I call stable coins and I'm trying to get people to call DAI a stable cryptocurrency. So it doesn't actually matter that there's a dollar there. And then, then, then there's these applications like Monolith with their Wirex card, which is a debit card that you just put DAI in an Ethereum wallet. You can take it to the grocery store and you can buy stuff with it today, except not in the United States. Um, but it's an option. 
And so, and, and more, most importantly, it's not, DAI is, is much less of a spending currency that needs external liquidity is like Bitcoin, a savings technology. And so the people that need DAI or, and use DAI and hold DAI are using it to save money. And they're using it to save money on Ethereum in the same way that Bitcoiners call Bitcoin a savings technology. DAI is also a savings technology. And the cool thing about before and before we start talking about the federal the uh, the monetary policy of the U.S. dollar, Dai is just a price feed. And the bullish the bullish case for MakerDAO is that it creates its own much more transparent price feed for Dai, and it has its its perfect independence from the Fed. And so I think these are all pretty decently aligned with with a Bitcoiner ideal, except it has this new stable cryptocurrency that's on Ethereum. Okay, can I ask a question? Because I die literally hurts my head. One of one of the questions that I have is because um, I I don't want this to be loaded. How how does the maker DAO like? What is it basing the the price on to 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 ensure that it's stable? And then what happens if that underlying pricing system is no longer stable? One die is always. Uh, one dollars worth of ether, and so a die is a credit on one dollars worth of ether. And then there is a system of, I think, 22 or 26 price feeds coming from various different oracles. And then all of those oracles commit what a what one what the value of Ether is in accordance to $1. And then it goes through a medianizer. So it takes the middle 50% of those values. And then that is the price of DAI. Well, but what happens if the dollar destabilizes and becomes high, very volatile itself? MakerDAO is not in a position to uh, yeah, reduce exposure that, to the uh, dollar. So I really think that that is the distinction with with something like Bitcoin. It's is we, um, and I don't use the we proverbially. Let's just say I. But but I think that there are a number of people that, that that look to Bitcoin for this. Is that at some point in time, as a function of of what it is that the Fed is doing, the dollar will destabilize. It is the logical endpoint of every fiat monetary system because mm-hmm. the, the desire to solve short term problems by debasing money. Are, are impossible for people in power to resist. Um, and that Bitcoin provides something entirely distinct from that. And, and yes, it is volatile today. But we look at that world and say, well, of course it is volatile. It has a fixed supply. And we are in the very early stages of, of a monetization event. And that if, if anything, and I think it's a quote that uh, from uh, a guy who I follow, who I have a lot of respect for, BJ Boyapati, it's that uh, establishment economists deride the fact that Bitcoin is volatile as if something can go from nothing to a stable form of money uh, overnight. It's completely ludicrous. And it is this idea that if, if, this, if this medium emerges on the free market, and, and especially if it's a digital one and, and, it's, and it's finitely scarce, there is no possible logical way that, 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 the, that the world just wakes up one day and says, yep, this is the thing that we're going to go with. Uh, and and that right. the reality is that Price discovery is a natural part of Bitcoin adoption. Um, and, and if you think about Bitcoin being adopted in waves, it is that you know, when, when people suddenly figure out that Bitcoin didn't die, and, and most people in the world that, that had heard of Bitcoin in, in 2017 probably thought that Bitcoin died. And then one day they're going to wake up and Bitcoin's going to be worth $15,000 or $20,000 and they're going to think, oh shit, maybe I was wrong. And, and then all those people all at once because when you look at a world where if adoption increases by, you know, Bitcoin adoption, I have no idea what the number is, but it's probably not more than 100 million. And of those 100 million, uh, probably fewer than half of them have any material exposure to it. That 
if there's a billion people that are going to have Bitcoin, that means that there are going to be multiple orders of magnitude of, of adoption that's going to be met with like 3% in, in, in May, you know, when the happening occurs, a 1% increase in, in supply. And so ultimately when, um, when the demand increases by orders of magnitude and supply is, is perfectly inelastic or practically inelastic, then, then volatility is just a very natural function and you can't get to a, a, a world of stability mm-hmm. um, if, you, if, yep. if you kind of try to short track that. And so then the other thing I would say, I kind of I, I do a currency peg. Like in the, in the traditional world of finance, currency pegs always fail because the only thing that a, that, a, that a government or an issuer of currency, whether it be MakerDAO or the Argentine peso or the Venezuelan Bolivar can do, all they can do is control the, uh, the supply. They can't force people to value it in a certain way. Um, all value is subjective. And in Bitcoin, it really becomes a tangible kind of assessment of properties that then people decide to either own or not. And, and, and the way that everybody deals with volatility is, you know, if Bitcoin's $150 billion or $180 billion today in total purchasing power, there's $250 trillion of, of just debt alone in the, in the global economy. So uh, the, 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 the practical scenario is that everybody that owns Bitcoin solves for that volatility by owning other assets. They don't solve mm-hmm. for kind of diversification right. by buying a bunch of other highly correlated assets because if they wanted to, they would just own the dollar. And then when you relate to you know, people in other, other countries that may not have access to, to, to the dollar, well, access to a stable coin, if it doesn't buy them goods in the real world, um, is very you know even in, in the, the developing world that owning Bitcoin over time would would be certainly far more um, effective as a as a store of value. Yeah, so that's that's the Bitcoin bull case. Um, that still doesn't answer how in the base case. Base case. <laughs> yeah, that's my base case. Base case. Okay, the Bitcoin base case, but that still doesn't answer the, like that's the justification for why we're going to have volatility. It's not the solution for people that can't be exposed to volatility in the short and medium term. And, and you said that, that uh, currency pegs don't work because that's not make or doubt because make or doubt it's you are guaranteed a credit of $1 worth of ether. That's the difference between a collateralized uh, currency, a debt and credit currency like die, then then just a credit window like the, like the Argentine peso used to be before it, before it broke. Even, but the dollar is subjective. So the thing that it's under that is under mm, yes. subjective. And so if right. the, if the monetary properties of that underlying thing are not sound, then then the thing mm-hmm. that's wrapping it are also not going to be sound. And when I when I say sound, reliable so, at at mm-hmm. maintaining value over time and and representing a good that others will will adopt in exchange. So the the case for MakerDAO is that everyone wants dollars now, and until the dollars then everyone's everyone's still going to want dollars for no one globally speaking no one wants bitcoin people want dollars and like sure that might change over the long term but right now everyone wants dollars and so MakerDAO's goal is to give the product that everyone wants which is access to the value of one u.s dollar on the internet without kyc without you know permissions serve as many people as possible and so MakerDAO is in a race. If, you, if we really think that this global, um, global macro risk is going to start to destabilize the dollar, MakerDAO is in a race to get as many customers as possible who want dollars today before they uh, un- unleash themselves from pegging to the dollar. And, then, and this, is, this is written into the, the goals of MakerDAO. They say the goal is not to keep die at a dollar forever. The, the goal is to create its own native price peg 
always have DAI as the stable cryptocurrency. And so what I see MakerDAO doing is just totally supplanting the Fed with a transparent auditable Fed where, where the, the value, the price of DAI is, is made stable and in a much more transparent way than the, the Fed does for, for the dollar. And to me, that sounds like an awesome crypto economic future and very cypher, cypherpunk. If the, yeah, essentially, MakerDAO or, or DAI um, is trying to, to you know, do to the Fed what the Fed did to gold. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that you know, kind of the, the, the working assumption that, that, that people don't want, don't want Bitcoin, I would say that the, the, that the people who do would disagree. Um, and that uh, the way that the, the way they manage and, and, and I personally manage kind of my own form of savings is uh, I'm accumulating Bitcoin and I'm no longer accumulating dollars. I still need dollars, but I'm, you know, as Bitcoin is transitioning into the dominant global currency, I want to hold more Bitcoin and less dollars. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I haven't, you know, spent the time to underlook, you know, there is, I remember when I was working in, um, in investment banking and uh, I, whatever you're putting into it is coming out wrong on the other side. And it's this idea that if you're starting, if, if there is no fundamental monetary property that exists in MakerDAO, that, that, like that if, if that inherent monetary property doesn't exist, then people won't adopt it. Um, the monetary property that exists in Bitcoin is that there are 21 million Bitcoin. That, that's all there will ever be. And the longer that it exists, the, the, the more likely that is to be the case because the more difficult it becomes to corrupt. And, and that is not the same in make or die. What essentially they want is for people to adopt make or die when it's categorically worse than the dollar itself in the hope that when the dollar destabilizes, probably because Bitcoin destabilizes it, that, that somehow it, you know, inherent monetary properties emerge, but really they never carry properties of the dollar. Um, you know, again, I don't know how the, the supply of maker DAO or is produced, but I, but I, but I think that's probably the root principle and there's probably some sort of centralized point that could co-opt that, that, w- that would cause it to, to ultimately be, be unreliable. And it will inherently be unreliable because Bitcoin has the ideal monetary policy and the most credible monetary policy. And anybody that's holding DAI is going to be looking at Bitcoin and saying, well, that kind of looks better. Uh, I think this transition us pretty uh, well into a topic that you bring up a lot in your writing as well as something that David noticed and kind of wanted to challenge is like this idea of the perfect supply and what that can kind of do to the world and how that's going to change, you know, how, uh, you know, information is conveyed. Can you talk a little bit about why 21 million is like the perfect supply, something that's like fixed rather than deflating or inflating or whatever, um, why you think that is so optimal? And then maybe David can jump in with, uh, with some of his retorts. Yeah. And I think that the part of that understanding, you, you kind of have, um, if you have any formal economic training, you kind of have to, you know, unlearn what you learned and, and, and rewire your brain based on, you know, kind of your own practical real world experiences. As, you know, kind of as I just said, but and when we think about, you know, the adoption of Bitcoin, what really draws people into Bitcoin? It is that they, they have a simple recipe to arrive at this point, but, but, but once they get there, that tw- a fixed supply, if I'm, if I'm performing work today and someone's going to pay me money, in the AP, in the AB test, that is, which form of money do I want to be paid? The vast majority of every individual, you know, you know, not to say that there aren't people that can't 
can't be irrational, there are, but the vast majority of everyone, if they were presented with a simple option, do you want to be paid in a form of currency that has a fixed supply and cannot be manipulated, or do you want to be paid in a form of currency that is inherently relying on trust and that is constantly manipulated, it's both increased and decreased, which one do you want? Uh, that the overwhelming majority of all individuals will say, well, just give me the currency that has a fixed supply. Um, and so, so that, that 21 million number, um, it, it really is, because 21 million in nominal terms is not very relevant. What, what becomes relevant is that kind of 42 million or 100 million. Um, it, it, it's really, it really comes down to the, the, the fact that it be fixed because each individual, when they're evaluating money, it, it's really coming down to two different monetary goods. And so that, that's one principle that you, if you're holding money, you are deferring consumption. Now, it, it's essentially just intermediary or intermediating a series of present and future transactions. So it doesn't matter whether it's a day, a week, or a month, or a year. So think about it as like traditional savings, like I'm saving for the long term. It's just you know, from point A exchange to point B exchange, I need whatever I sold for to be of comfortable value, if not more in an ideal setting, than, 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 than the value that I produced. And you know, because of that, every individual sitting there evaluating, well, how, what, what medium is going to get me there the best? And, and the end result of that, because they're all, they're all looking at the same problem, which is I'm deferring current consumption, bridging the present to the future. What, what is the good that I need to do that best? That is an inherently intersubjective problem. Um, they're all evaluating tangible goods. Uh, I can't, I hold two monies at once, but I can't, you know, if I'm holding one, it by definition means I'm not holding the other. And one of those two goods is going to definitionally do the job of money better. And, and so each individual is making that, that, that very objective and tangible assessment on a form of money. And they all ultimately arrive at the same point because they're all trying to communicate with each other. Money becomes the intermediary that, that it gives us the, the very baseline to express value. Um, but it, but people don't just arrive at the same endpoint by chance. They they evaluate things like is the is the currency supply fixed? What you get as a result, and I think this is to your question of like that 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 ultimately what money does is it communicates subjective value. The expression of that uh, price ultimately isn't just relevant as it relates to you know how much money does it cost to get this good. It is what is the relative price between two other goods, and that 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 money allows us to make those economic calculations that inform um, you know, virtually all of our kind of day-to-day -day decisions as it relates to, you know, what do I, what do I want to, what do I want to consume? Well, if I want to consume that, that I need to produce, you know, if I want to consume X, I got to produce Y. Um, and that if you have a form of money that fluctuates in supply, whether it increases in supply or decreases in supply, it introduces um, a, a distortion that otherwise doesn't need to be there in the communication of price. Um, that um, if you were to remove that manipulation of the, the change in the money supply, that the price signals would ultimately become far more reliably greater stability um, and, and, and likely, you know, you, we would we would do away with the, the booms and busts of economic cycles because when you know, the, the Fed increases the money supply and then decreases the money supply. Essentially what that is creating is, is, a, is, a, is basically, it's causing the, the ground underneath everybody to shake. It's, it's creating, you know, false signals throughout the, the economy and that, that all you're really trying to achieve in money 
is the communication of relative value between two other goods, it, it becomes very logical that you would say, well, what is the good that can do that the best? It's the good that changes the least. Well, what is the good that changes the least? It's the good that doesn't change at all. And that's why Bitcoin's 21 million supply is, is the ideal currency. So I'm happy to kind of dive in. That was a little meandering and long-winded, but uh, got a, you know, just got a little. No, it's a, it's a, it's a great preamble. And for, for what it's worth, like I'm on board. Like I, I believe, I believe that, uh, you know, when, when the Fed, uh, it's a filter on everyone's decisions that they weren't really uh, accounting for when they made all those decisions. Uh, what I'm not totally convinced on is like the degree that this is so incredibly beneficial for the world at large. Uh, and, and I think we could, we could hypothesize that, you know, a stable currency will, help price be communicated better throughout the different you know markets of the world but it, it, I, I think bitcoiners like say like and it'll create the utopia and i'm not i don't it seems to be like we don't actually have the data for like how bad how shitty our situation is specifically because of a non-dependable currency like the dollar and then how how awesome a world could be with a totally stable cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I can't figure out how to measure how far apart those two. And I'm also outside of my area of expertise. Uh, I, I just think that there's just not much data there to actually show that, like, in the future with a stable current currency, like, everything, everything will be fixed. I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but I, I, Bitcoiners definitely do say that. Yeah, it's not that Bitcoin is going to create a utopia, uh, but we do recognize that Bitcoin is going to fix uh, a number of problems because, um, you know, that we recognize the problems that have become created as a function of centralized management of the money supply. And so it's, you don't necessarily have to um, fully, you know, believe that the Bitcoin solves all problems because it doesn't. Um, ultimately, money is just a tool and, and humans are going to decide what, the, what they choose to do with that tool. Um, but if I wanted to use a, a practical example of how, you know, for example, manipulation of money, the money supply works. Um, you know, if we think about the manipulation of the supply of credit, uh, well, well, what, what are the, the types of goods that are most dependent on the continued supply of low cost credit? Probably housing. Um, if the, the Fed did not constantly manipulate the price of credit lower and, you know, if people couldn't get access to, to, the, to 80% of the, the, the money that they don't have to buy a house, then the price of houses are going to go down. But on the reverse side, if they could, then it's going to cause the, price, the prices of houses to go up over time. What is that going to induce? It's going to induce all of these people and all these resources within the economy to react to those increases in price. And more people are going to become real estate brokers. More people are going to work in you know, building homes. And then all of a sudden, all at once, and this is what happened in the financial crisis, they're going to figure out that there was a massive imbalance between supply and demand and the price levels weren't sustainable and they're only sustainable so long as the, as the Fed manipulated the, the supply of credit. And, and then what's happened there is because uh, a, a larger share of the economy and the resources in the economy were devoted to that, you have a, a skills mismatch uh, between, the, between where the true supply and demand function of the economy would have naturally guided. And so that only happens because the, the money supply was manipulated. And ultimately, the communication of that or the expression of that is prices becoming manipulated. And then when prices are manipulated, especially over extended periods of time, that people tend to figure it out, but they figure it out all at once, and you would get actually far greater unemployment than you otherwise would. 
Now, that's just one example, um, but because the financial crisis is not too too far in the distant history and because that the supply of housing is dictated by the price of housing, which is dictated by the, the manipulation of, of the supply of credit, that it's a perfect example to, to articulate. And then when you abstract away from, from that principle, it is that if the money supply can be manipulated, it can be manipulated. So if you're, you know, if, if you look at a curve and people say, well, why not just 1%? inflation that's is why isn't that low enough well over time that the amount of nominal units that you're creating if you just compound one percent over one percent over one percent um becomes you know the rate may not be exponential but the nominal amount certainly um and so you know if, if you just start at two bookends which is this is what happens when you manipulate the money supply economic signals become distorted well what is what is the furthest way that you can get away from there and practically speaking the only way that you can get away from there is that if the money supply is not and if the money supply cannot be manipulated then supply of credit can't be manipulated prices can't be manipulated and ultimately prices represent the preferences of individuals within an economy um, i i express to you how much i'm willing to pay for this computer or this microphone um, like all of those individual expressions are actually kind of a sum output of the value that each person creates in the world and then how they perceive other people's value is if you are not manipulating the money supply that the expression of those individual preference in the form of money will always more clearly track the actual kind of demands of 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 an, of an economy and of a society then the the case where you arbitrarily insert the distortion of money by you know manipulating the supply of money um, because the demand of money is always variable um, but the the communication of, uh, of price and value will always inherently be distorted if if the people who are using that medium don't know kind of how much exists at any point in time so so that's really the, the principle i don't expect that bitcoin is utopia or anything like that but but i think that there is a very strong fundamental argument that that says that a money supply that isn't manipulated has more reliable prices and prices are ultimately a, um, a communication if not for manipulating the money supply. So this uh, arena of conversation is actually where I become more of a Bitcoiner than an Ethereum. Uh, I try and get my Ethereum friends to like hop on board with the, the whole um, time preference uh, concept and the, the, the Aust more Austrian economics um, and met with some degree of resistance. Um, the, the, the most recently when I brought this up, uh, the person I was talking to said that, that we've experienced the most amount of growth ever in the last, you know, 50 years. And so that the, the fed manipulating the money, monetary supply, like seems to have worked. Um, my, my counter argument to that is like, yeah, it probably has worked and it has really allowed for growth by taking away from the future and giving it today, like taking future growth away from away and then giving it. Uh, and so we all, and it kind of, it's, it's getting with what Bitcoiners are calling the Bitcoin, um, super bullish macro, macro bull case, et cetera. Um, and then it also created, in my opinion, it hastened global warming to a point where it, it moved global warming closer to, to today, faster than our technology would be able to deal with it. So now we have like overpopulation, we have an oversupply of food with under distribution, uh, and uh, we have like these immense amount of problems, geopolitical problems that we're just not really prepared to deal with. And I personally can, I, I accept that that happened as a result of the hastened 
timeline that was created from the Fed minting dollars. Is that something that that you kind of drive with? Yeah, I think I think on that point, I, I pretty much agree, kind of one after the other. I, I think that that when you when you think about you know kind of growth. Uh, because mm-hmm. we're increasing a lot of dollars yeah like we probably are producing more things but are we producing the right that you know the way the, the only way that the the fed the way that the fed's economy works is i i, I it's a credit-based system um and that there's too much debt and then they create more dollars so that more debt can be created well if you think about you know the unit level economics of of what debt is and i'm saying it's not like not all debt's bad you know, here at Unchain, we we you know help people access liquidity through 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 means of debt. But you know what what debt ultimately represents is you're you're consuming something today that you haven't yet earned, um, and the the extension of that is you're you're pulling forward your demand, and that you know if the Fed has only been able to achieve quote growth by pulling forward demand that where I kind of you know, line up with you 100% that, that they've essentially, you know, borrowed from the future um, to, to be able to sustain uh, in an other, otherwise unsustainable way where we are in the present. And that, you know, if anybody looks at that and says, you know, something bad, like if they don't look at the financial crisis and recognize that that was the output of, of the Fed, you know, creating a system where too much leverage could continue to be sustained. Essentially, when the, when the, when the whole financial system tried to right size and say, "Hey, we've we, we've expanded far too quickly when it comes to all this debt," when when each time the Fed puts it down and lets allows for further credit expansion, all it does is create you know it's essentially kicking the can down the road. It's it's short term um, stability for long term volatility, and um, I think that you know kind of the thing that I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about, but I I do recognize this. We are all going to pay for that, and at some point in time, it becomes evident that that it didn't really work. Um, and um, you know that that likely comes in the form of some sort of you know future financial crisis, um, or you know kind of you know ultimately destabilization destabilization of the currency because that 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 will lead to a financial crisis. So I do think that no, you know people oftentimes say, well, isn't it great? You know the Fed's done all these things, but there there are so many other markers that that suggest. So when you, when you look at the situation, it's really just that the Fed is biding time and that at, at some point in the future, that as a function of the Fed continuing to, to, to print more and more dollars, that, that ultimately uh, the size of that credit system, that, that the creation of those dollars then, then, then further creates, will lead to de- a destabilization. It will become very evident that all they were really doing was pulling forward demand and that, that at that point in time, the the cost that we all will pay will be some form of economic instability. And, and looking at the, again, I always look back at the financial crisis. If you, if you start to have waves of unemployment, um, millions, not tens of millions of individuals, that, 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 that should be your, you know, your sign of failure that, you know, Hey, stupid, you should probably stop doing what you were doing. Um, but they, they never seem to realize that, that they're actually creating the problem rather than the solution. There's so many things we could talk to you about. Um, one of the, th- but like, I guess last, last word is one of the things that you have looked up and we probably should have started with this is that you have looked into all of the, like the fed papers, the fed minutes in detail. You're probably one of the few people that has actually gone back through all those things. And your conclusion is that they chronically have no idea what they're doing. Can you kind of talk about that really quick and then we'll wrap this up. Yeah. And then I'll, 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 
I'll swing it back into Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. uh, I haven't read every single transcript of the but I did go back through an exercise um, and, and, you know, for, for, for those people out there with the Fed, um, the Fed releases minutes to its meetings, you know, kind of a few weeks after every meeting, but they, they release the, the full transcripts of every meeting five years after the fact. It's almost like, well, we, you know, we're going we're gonna to put them away for a while and then hopefully people don't go back and look at them. Um, and so, you know, as I was, you know, kind of on a dual track understanding Bitcoin, but then I was also doing work trying to understand what would happen with the, the U.S. economy once the Fed started to reverse the effects of, of quantitative easing, you know, back around 2016 or 17. I went back and read the transcripts from Fed meetings from around the time of the financial crisis and then subsequently, you know, around the European debt crisis in 2011. Uh, so I haven't read transcripts, you know, I've read some from 2012, but again, they only come out every five years. And now that I'm so focused on Bitcoin, I don't go back and read them. But, you know, one of the, one of the core kind of ideas that, that, that I came away with that was I'll see, I think increasingly is becoming, you know, before it was a philosophical debate. Now we've got a competing market in Bitcoin and then everything else. Um, but, you know, what, what you can't debate when you go back and read the Fed transcripts is that just how chronically wrong the Fed is. Um, you know, and, and the example that I often give is um, because when I was reading the transcripts, it was oftentimes, not not oftentimes, it was all the time where, you know, we knew the history, you know, we knew the, the ending to the story, but you're reading the book, you know, for people who did not know the end of the story. And there, were, there was an occurrence um, or there were a few different cases where in, you know, as, a, as an example in 2011, uh, 15 out of 16 uh, people among the Fed thought that they would be unwinding QE2 uh, in 2012. Um, they didn't ever unwind QE2. They started QE3 in, um, in 2013. And, and, you know, as soon as they started to unwind QE3, they never could get there because then the repo market broke. And, they, you know, since September of this year, they've then had to insert $400 billion at minimum dollars back in the system. And so that was one case where all, you know, 15 out of 16 people kind of were asked a question and they were asked, you know, kind of when we do this, how do we expect to, to facilitate the unwind of QE? And 15 out of 16 people said that they would unwind their balance sheet first and that then they would start to lower short-term interest rates. What did, what did they do? It was the opposite. Um, and then also kind of in that year, they were, they were ex expecting that the, um, this was 2011, they were expecting that the economy was improving, all the markers were there, and then boom, there was a European debt crisis, and, and the U.S. economy, and, and the way that the Fed was speaking about it was that the U.S. economy was starting to look a whole heck of a lot like 2008. And so, and then, and then when you just look at these instances of like things that they're expecting to do in the future versus what actually happened, it was just like, they are literally wrong, but yet they can continue to that same the same course which we're seeing at this very day that something that, that something happens that they didn't expect to happen and rather than just you know s you know setting down the pencil and getting up from the table and, and, and you know giving some serious introspection to the whole thing their response is okay let's go let's go print 400 trillion dollars or, or in their world let's go create 400 not trillion 400 billion dollars which is what they've done in the last uh, six months um, that, that they keep the same, don't have, um, I would say, the temperament to step back and, and, and really ask the hard question of, are we actually the solution or might just we be the problem? And I think that that, you know, when you kind of, to, I think maybe round this out and, uh, and, and, and kind of, you know, move on, it is that people sitting around 
around a table, whether it be 12 people at the Fed or 100 people or you know, five, 400 people in Congress, uh, nobody could make decisions as it relates to managing money supply you know, because the actual kind of the, the knowledge is actually possessed by the, the individuals that participate within an economy. And that kind of to, 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 to round out on Bitcoin, it is, you know, the, the problem that is the Fed and their, their, their kind of um, unwillingness to chart another course, which would be that don't screw with the money supply, that, that kind of, that they are so conditioned that the, the only way to solve their problems is to debase money. Ultimately, that's going to result in the destabilization of that money. And, and Bitcoin really fixes that because it, it totally abstracts away the function of currency issuance from any central third party. And, and people often say that uh, Bitcoin has a fixed supply and it's 21 million. Is that really it's just driven by consensus? And that that number could change if an overwhelming consensus of individuals said, no, nope, we want it to be 1% inflation. But in reality, that, uh, that a, a group of, of rational and irrational actors would not overwhelmingly, you know, and, and uh, you know, kind of collectively decide to debase their own currency. And so really what Bitcoin does, it does have a fixed supply, but, but it's really one that's, that, that has monetary policy that's driven by the consensus that's built on the idea that, you know, as it relates to money and the value of money and how money should be issued, uh, the wisdom is in the crowd. It's not always in the crowd, but in the case of, of, of the, such a basic necessity that is money, that, that if the consensus is dictating and driving um, the rate of issuance of the money supply, and that it's in, in, in not in the hands of a few centralized individuals, that that, that form of money is going to, and that kind of mechanism which monetary policy is affected will ultimately inherently be more liable than 12 people sitting at the Fed deciding to spend a trillion dollars or $500 billion. So. I know a lot of people that would disagree that uh, pushing it out to the edges works better, but I definitely agree with that. And I think that that's what drives the thesis for most Bitcoiners. <laughs> Listen to this podcast. Listen yeah. to this podcast. But uh, Parker, cool. thanks so much for coming on the show, man. This was a fun one and a lot of good topics. I think you, you bring a very interesting way of breaking down what's happening. Um, and it's uh, very clear. So I think that a lot of people you know, will have learned a lot from you know, how you kind of break this down, especially learn more about Austrian economics. Um, Parker, where can people find you and who do you want to hear from? You can find me on Twitter, Parker A. Lewis, and I write uh, some articles on Bitcoin that we have on our unchained-capital.com blog, uh, but I also put them on Twitter. And uh, I want to hear from anybody um, who needs help securing their Bitcoin or is interested in learning kind of about why so many people are focused on Bitcoin. So... Um, DMs open, I believe. Very cool. You guys can find the show at POV CryptoPod. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. David? You can find me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Thanks, everyone. Five star reviews, y'all. All right, see you guys. The happening's not priced in. Nick <laughs> <laughs> Carter disagrees.
minutes are for you to 